Welcome to Unleashed at Work and Home, the show dedicated to helping veterinarians, vet techs, dog trainers, shelter and rescue workers, pet sitters, and all the other animal-crazy pet professionals manage their stress and find more joy. I'm your host, Colleen Pilar, and I'm thrilled you're here with us today. Make sure you hit the subscribe button on your favorite app so that you won't miss a single episode. This episode is brought to you by our free community, the Circle of Resilient and Thriving Pet Professionals. If you like the ideas shared here, then you're invited to continue the conversation with other lifelong learners in the community. You can find out more at ColleenPilar.com. It's the perfect place for you to learn cool stuff, feel good, and take action to create the life you love. Come join us. My guest today is Dr. Megan Heron, and she is a board-certified veterinary behaviorist, which I think is a particularly important niche in the world of of pet care, because we obviously need all of the medical care, but we need the behavioral elements too. And when I was training, I really saw that there was so much interplay between health and behavior that it's awesome that there are so many veterinary behaviorists coming along and also heartbreaking that there are so few to serve the needs of all of the pets in the United States. So how many are there, Dr. Heron? Do you remember how many board certified veterinary behaviorists there are? Oh, gosh, I know I was number 50. You were number 50. <laughs> and I feel, yeah. And I think we have close to doubled and that was 13 years ago. So as you said, yay that there's more of us, but it's kind of sad that we've only doubled in over a decade and not, you know, more than that, considering, you know, if you look at the other specialties in veterinary medicine, um, we're a very small college, uh, but, but growing, chugging along, trying to get as many more as we can. I think it's so important. So important. Yeah, I think it's a matter of the, the veterinary school's you know, slowly but surely are starting to appreciate it as a necessary part of veterinary education, uh, because that's where, I mean, that's where the bulk of the training is happening, is in the academic institutions. You know, we, we have a lot that are in private practice doing what we call a non-traditional training, but it's it's a much slower path because you don't have all the resources that an academic institution would. And so slowly but surely, we are we are getting more and more people board certified. But it's a it's a daunting task when you're when you're trying to put that program together on your own. Um, I certainly trained residents in the academic manner, and I've trained residents in the non-traditional manner. It definitely is, you know, you got you've got a, a harder path ahead of you. And a lot of people, I think, get into practice and they're like, "Gosh, I'm successful. I've got this business going. Do I really have to write case reports and study for boards? Because it's this is life changing. <laughs> I mean, you lose weeks of your life studying for that test. But I always tell people, my residents who are just feeling overwhelmed and don't feel like they need to get board certified, like it, it makes you a better clinician. There's just, you don't know what you don't know until you start <laughs> studying for boards and, and realizing how important it is to know every detail about the drugs that you're using and know every detail about you know, all the different medical facets that contribute to the behaviors you might be seeing, you know, because as a veterinary behaviorist, as you said, you are, you're a veterinarian first and foremost. And so you need to know the interplay between the physical and the mental for our patients. Yeah. I think that is such an important piece and, and one that surprises me that we could ever have thought were separate, but obviously we have thought it was separate in human medicine and in animal medicine. It's it's something that 
now we're having a greater awareness of how uh, behavior is a factor of health and they are intrinsically tied. So because there were not 8,000 veterinary behaviorists in your life when you were a young child, odds are you didn't grow up dreaming of being a veterinary behaviorist. What what was your path to get from childhood to here? Correct. I didn't even want to be a veterinarian as a child. I think, gosh. Interesting. I think I wanted to be an actress. I wanted to, you know, be a movie star or something ridiculous like that as a kid. <laughs> um, but, you know, came down to earth and, you know, really started with an interest in animal. I had an interest in animal behavior during my undergraduate. So I was kind of exploring different classes and I really enjoyed ethology and animal behavior and um, thought, oh, I'm going to study animals. I'm going to work for National Geographic, have some cool job like that, you know, sitting in the trees, <laughs> Jane Goodall sort of thing. <laughs> and uh, my cousin who was in vet school at the time, she's like, um, you're not going to touch an animal. Like, really? Like those jobs are few and far between. Like, what, have you thought about getting a DVM? Like you'd really have more hands-on work with animals. And I thought, that sounds boring. Vets just give shots to dogs and cats and they hate them. Like the patients hate them. Why would I want to do that? And um, she's like, you just go volunteer, just check it out. And I volunteered at a, it was in Arizona. I went to Arizona state for undergrad and I went to a local busy, you know, referral and emergency clinic. And it was amazing. Like, wow, this is like investigative science and animals all together in one. It was really cool. Mm -hmm. And I thought, all right, I'm going to do it, but maybe I want to be a zoo vet because I still had that sort of wildlife um, desire. And I thought, well, okay, I'll go into vet school wanting to be a zoo vet, which plenty of people go into vet school wanting to be a zoo vet and very few come out still (laughs) on that career path. It's not as glorious um, as it seems, but um, yeah, and then I adopted a dog, right? So I think every, you know, behaviorist has an animal that changed them, right? (laughs) Um, I adopted a dog. He was eight weeks old and he was biting everybody, which is, you know, pretty abnormal, pretty severe. And I, I got all the wrong advice and I was working for a, a horse vet at the time. And, um, you know, everybody out there had a different way to alpha roll or punish this dog. And, you know, I brought him home to, you know, was going starting vet school the next year and um, found all the wrong trainers and, you know, did the prong collars and all the alpha stuff. And it was a disaster. It wasn't working. It made him so much worse. And it wasn't until I moved to Columbus to start vet school that I met up with an applied animal behaviorist. So Tracy Schreier was helping out at the college at the time because Ohio State had not committed to employing any veterinary behaviorists. So she was just kind of helping out by, you know, giving her time and for the most part. And I saw her as a, as a client and, she, you know, introduced me to the world of companion animal behavior, which I didn't even know existed, right? All I knew that there were trainers here. I was wanting to be a veterinarian and didn't even know that companion animal behavior was a thing. And so then it was all the worlds came together, right? The love of behavior and the investigative science, veterinary medicine. And so I was like, okay, behavior it is. I want to know more. And so I remember going to our dean at the time and said, okay, I want to do a dual degree because they offered a dual degree where you could do a PhD and, and DVM, but I want to do it in behavior. And he kind of laughed and he's like, we don't have that here. Silly, silly girl. I'm like, what do you mean I don't have that here? He's like, you'd have to get someone to donate, you know, millions of dollars to endow a chair. Like, we will never have behavior here at Ohio State. And I thought, oh gosh. So I just had to go elsewhere. And I remember writing an essay for the APDT offered a scholarship, you know, for vet students. So I wrote an essay about my dog. And either I was the only applicant or it was pretty good because I got it. (laughs) 
And I remember sitting in, was it one, actually one of Karen Overall's talks. And I sat next to an older gentleman who happened to be named R.K. Anderson. And um, we chatted and um, boy, that was like the conversation that changed my life, really. And he told me all about what a residency is and who had the residencies. And it was very like direct. All right, you need to call Melissa Bain. You need to, you need to call Sharon Carl Davis. You need to get to know all these people and you go visit them and spend time there. Um, and so I did. I looked at, all right, who's going to have residencies? Who would let me spend time with them? And I did. I visited several, you know, went to Penn, Georgia, Davis, and just sat in that world of veterinary behavior. And every minute I got, every minute I wanted more. And I loved it. And it was really my passion. So applied for lots of residencies, was fortunate enough to get accepted at UPenn with uh, Alana Reisner. And um, yeah, the rest is history. Um, and then, well, what's really funny is that that you know, position of veterinary behavior that was never going to be at Ohio State, you know, fast forward to um, 2009. And um, my same friend who encouraged me to go to vet school was uh, actually an administrator at Ohio State and said, you know, we're thinking of behavior. What would you think about writing a proposal for starting something like that here? I thought, oh gosh, I didn't think I was planning on coming back to Ohio. I keep trying to leave Ohio and (laughs) it doesn't work. (laughs) And um, so I wrote a proposal, put up a budget and they said, all right, we'll give you a try. We'll try it for a year. And if you could at least break even, we we might keep you around. And so, um, yeah, within, I think, nine, 10 months, I had a three-month waiting list at Ohio State. So, again, wow, packed up my U-Haul, drove. And even there was faculty there that were like, why do we need a behavior, right? Can't we just look that up in a book? So, I mean, there was resistance from within. Um, It was not a warm welcome by everyone. And so here I am, a young woman in vet med in a soft field that was kind of, you know, wow, what's that? And within months was very productive, always broke even. <laughs> Took a while to be able to justify getting, you know, support staff and residents. So talk about burnout. That was, that was pretty hard. Yeah. Especially once, you know, I started having a family. So that became challenging. But you know, it was great. Starting a program from scratch was really fun. That's how I work. I love starting from scratch and being able to build and create. I don't work well when you stick me into a mold and say, okay, work within this uh, and do the same thing every day. So it was exciting for me. I'll you know, go back to my alma mater and, and start a new program and to, to see it expand. So did that and then um, was very fortunate enough to meet uh, the founders of my current institution, which is GG's, a shelter organization dedicated to improving the lives of shelter dogs. They are founders. Our founder, George Gestos, is a builder and is, you know, in his 90s and wanted he wanted to do something to help dogs. And he wanted to build, like his idea was a sanctuary with a bone-shaped pool and, <laughs> and love all the dogs. And fortunately, he had some guidance that said, well, let's see what the need is and see how we can best help it. And so he, you know, and his wife, Tina, came to my classes at the vet school to learn about behavior. And they wanted to build a shelter that was not just saving lives, but giving them good quality of lives and doing the, the best that they could. And so after taking a few classes, they started to build their um, organization and asked what it would take to get me to jump on board. And um, at the time I said, well, I wasn't looking to leave. I've got a pretty good gig, but I have sort of, you know, I've spread my wings probably as far as they can go here. And um, you know what I would take is a three day a week job. That's what I need. I just need some breathing room. And um, if you can make that work, I'll I'll jump ship and and they made it work. So I've jumped shipped officially two and a half years now at this institution. Um, You know, I still am close ties with uh, the vet school and my resident who was finishing at the time, we made sure that we transitioned so she could take over. So that program did not disappear because that was something I was not willing to let go of. Right. 
especially that waiting list, everyone would have panicked. Yes. So, <laughs> but it's now in wonderful, probably better hands, to be honest. <laughs> Dr. Lily's very fit for academia and, and keeping that successful. So, but yeah, I, I didn't realize how burnt out I was and how just exhausted emotionally and physically until until I left. Right. I remember having that panic like two weeks before I left Ohio State. I was driving home and like kind of getting anxious and. I'm not a super anxious person, but I just started to feel this like remorse. What have I done? What have I done? You know, I a year away from probably full professor and oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm going to this brand new organization that could totally fail. And uh, it's shelter, like, you know, shelter is good and bad. And I can remember my previous mm-hmm. shelter position just aged me quite a bit. There's, there's some downsides to it. Even if you feel like you have good impact, um, just a, just this sort of panic. Well, it's too late now because I've, I've already got, <laughs> you know, my replacement there and it's time to go. And then within a few weeks, just the relief of that pressure. I mean, there's so much in academia that's like the variety is wonderful, but there's so much pressure to, you know, create your academic curriculum and teach students and be available to students and solve all of their pets problems. And then you have your pressure to have your clinic school. You have a three month waiting list. You're trying to see as many clients as you can training your residents, uh, making sure your staff are happy and then doing scholarship and publishing and book chapters. So it's, it's all of it at once um, while raising two kids and being married to someone who works overnights and swing shifts and a lot of weekends. So it was, it's a lot and um it's been yeah yeah <laughs> so but it's so it's been a good it's been a good change for me that's awesome it sounds awful actually when you just listed all that out like in my head i probably would have come up with half of that if if someone had said what are the responsibilities of someone you know doing the behavior at a big university like that and when you say that i'm like well oh, oh yeah that too oh that too but i wouldn't have had those top of mind um until you said them so you said you, you've you always loved kind of like diving in and building something new. That's sort of your sweet spot. Has that always been true? Was that is that just a part of who you are? So I think I've always been kind of a wanderer and someone who, I mean, I was a sassy kid for sure. I got in trouble a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, like I didn't, if I didn't like the rules, but it makes sense to me, then I didn't, you know, I found ways to go around them and that got me in trouble probably a bit more than most kids, um, but just curious and, and wanting to make change. You know, I think I started, I can remember starting up behavior clubs, starting uh, helping start up the shelter medicine club. Yeah. I think maybe without realizing, I think I've always been someone who liked autonomy, whether I was this great creator and made huge impact, you know, in high school and college, probably not. Um, but I just, I knew I like, I worked better with autonomy. I had someone really pressing on me and having me follow certain parameters. I just I didn't do well with that. Um, I think yeah. probably have undiagnosed ADHD. <laughs> now my daughter is <laughs> diagnosed and I'm like, oh yeah, huh, I do all of that. I did all of that as a kid and um, just high functioning enough to get by. But I think just the way I, I like to you know, hyper-focus on one part and then take a break from that and hyper-focus on another. It's just how my brain works. And so to have to stay on task and stay within certain parameters, this doesn't work well for my brain. So I think when I have that breathing room, I can, I can do good things. And sometimes it's the way I get there is a little haphazard, but, but I usually have pretty good follow-through. Yeah. Well, clearly, I mean, when you get to board certified anything, you've got good follow-through. <laughs> like you solve the problem you go. When, when you can 
cross that hurdle because that is a lot of hurdles to get to get past to get there. So when you started thinking about vet school, you were already thinking about behavior like that far back. Because you, when you said about the dual degree, that's like before you even started vet school, you wanted to do that? No, that was a little bit. So I, when I started, I think I'd shifted gears to maybe zoo or wildlife, right? I'd sort of forgotten about behavior. Because again, I didn't realize that behavior was part of veterinary medicine. Mm-hmm. And so I just discovered that I really liked veterinary medicine and I wanted to work with animals. And I, I still had that wild animal, that zoology background that interested me. And it wasn't until I adopted that dog and then discovered his problems moving back to Columbus for vet school and met with a, an applied animal behaviorist there and realized, oh, this all comes together very well. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of my desire to be a zoo vet sort of faded away into the background, especially as I volunteered with the zoo vets there. Their life's not glamorous at all. It's hard. They have so much bureaucracy, so many politics to deal with, and they don't get paid squat. I mean, it's really... It's a tough gig. Uh, it sounds really glamorous, but it's definitely a tough gig. They definitely are limited <laughs> in what they they can do and what they can expand. So I feel for them. They're doing great work, but I, mm-hmm. I don't think it would have worked well for me. You also said you didn't realize how burned out you were until after you were away from the situation and some time had passed, which is so common. That's so common for people to not realize the extent of the repercussions. But I'm wondering if you can tell me one way that you know that now you're in a better state than you were before? Like what, what is different? How do you know that you're, you're feeling less burnout? I mean, I think I recognize it to some degree. I can remember being asked to be on a panel um, for, it was like a wellness thing for faculty. And it's like, you know, parents, working parents, like, how do you manage it all? How do you do it all? Would you be on this panel? And I said, no, (laughs) I, I'm not doing it well at all. I'm a terrible, I feel like a bad parent. I feel like completely disorganized, disheveled, barely getting by academically. I don't think I'm a good example um, at all. And at the time, you know, I was training a brand new resident. I had an infant, my second child, an infant and a two-year-old. And I remember I had to pick up the slack from a resident who had left. So I would be up, you know, I would nurse the baby and I'd be up till midnight answering client emails and then get back there at seven, do rounds, try to train my new resident. I I would explain it like I get up and I start running. Mm -hmm. I just start running and I run all day and I run all night. And then finally I collapse. I go to bed, sleep for a little bit and then get up. It's like, it's just like this treadmill that was constant. There wasn't a reprieve and um, things got better once I got more support. Like once the residents were trained, once I got a second resident, once I had a technician and an assistant, just to help with that load, the administrative load and the emails and the paperwork, it's unreal. The behavior has so much of it because there's so much. When a client calls in to make a behavior for me, it's just a different level of drama and of handholding that's needed for that client than someone's calling in to make a surgical appointment or internal medicine. Yeah. And again, some people who are dealing with chronic disease, like dermatology is a good example. It's stressful and there's a long way, but this is like... These dogs are, they're going to lose their lives if they don't get in soon and they need help and they need a lot of hand holding. They're very emotional. Mm-hmm. And so to take all that on was hard. And I think, you know, over time I got better at being able to be there for someone without taking on that stress. And that's a hard thing to develop. And I, I worry about new veterinarians as well as new, you know, behaviorists because you, if we're, a lot of us are empaths, we feel their stress, we feel their pain and we feel responsible for their pets' behavior problems. And we feel like failures when we can't fix it. 
you will just drown. You will go under quickly and you'll leave the field. If you don't have a way to say, this isn't about me, I'm here, I hear you. I share your frustration and you can also leave it on the table and know that what they're going through is normal for them, but it isn't your fault and it's not your responsibility to take that all on for them. Otherwise you'll, you'll completely drown. Um, so I'm not saying I didn't drown for a while, <laughs> but I developed kind of skills to be able to say, this isn't my fault. This isn't about me. I just ran out of bandwidth to be honest, to, to be able to do that. Um, I think just, and then coming away. So here I thought things were getting better and then coming away from it, just you know, to breathe. And I, it's funny because a lot of people are like, Oh, you took off three days a week so you can spend time with the kids. I go, oh, not really. <laughs> Kids are going to daycare. I, mean, I just have more time for me. Started by like going through different rooms and organizing them because the house is just, it's just clutter that you just see and you could never reach. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, all that mess. I can't get to it someday, right? And as a mom and a you know person who likes to accomplish things, it's very stressful to live with so much going around you and you just have to kind of gain that comfort of it's okay there's mess it's, it's okay <laughs> um and so I started by organizing my pantries and organizing the office but then very rapidly I filled my time with other projects right so I'm currently working on a veterinary textbook for first year vet students so there is no textbook right now that is designed for like introduction to veterinary behavior there's lots of wonderful textbooks you know Kathy helps domestic animal behavior Karen overall as well as you know, Lisa Rodosta and Gary Landsberg have their new book, Behavior Problems, that, well, the new version coming out, Behavior Problems that Dog and Guess. There's a lot of clinical textbooks for veterinarians, but there's nothing geared as, hey, this is a companion for your vet school course. Or if you don't have a vet school course, here's a great thing to read to get that information. You know, as I was teaching that to students, I never had a book that could go with it. And for years, I said, I'm going to write it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. And I never had time. And so I decided that I would have time now. So, <laughs> so it, but it's a fun project and it's on my time. It's my term. So I, I have days off that, yes, I'm working on other projects, but it's my choice. It's my freedom. And just having that control over what I choose to or not to do is, is stress relieving for sure. And, you know, if I want to get my kids early and go do something, I can. Sometimes we do. Um, it's just nice to have the, the flexibility and the, and the freedom to have that choice of what I can and can't do on those days. I could be at home if I wanted. I could I could work on stuff for work. A lot of times I do. I'm doing stuff for Gigi. This is a very intense job. Um, and I think if I did it five days a week, I would it'd be it'd be too much because I do I, I'm full force when I'm here for sure. And it's exciting and fun stuff, but it's also a lot of it's emotionally charged. So so you know it's good to have a break. Yeah. How old are your kids now? They are six and eight, two girls for just sort of first grade and third grade. So getting out of that high maintenance toddler phase for sure was helpful. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think I wrote my first book when my youngest kid went to first grade. Like that was when there was just enough bandwidth in my life to allow me to see that maybe, maybe there could be a creative project. But you had said about um, not taking on all of the emotion of the clients and the responsibility for the outcomes. and. That is like the best advice anyone can ever give and the hardest advice to follow. Like it's not something I learned until after I burned out and just got to a point where I couldn't take anymore, but then I beat myself up about that. Mm -hmm. Um, So we have so many people in these fields who are amazing, talented, capable, impassioned people who, because they hold that empathy and responsibility and drive so tightly, 
that they wind up hurting themselves and their long-term ability to make the difference that they could make forever when they, you know, pull it out, put it all out there and then don't save anything for replenishing themselves, I guess is where I'm trying to go. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious when you're working with the newer vet students and the people who are coming into the field, what are the things you suggest to them to, to really help them see that doing what they can is not the same as making everything perfect? Yes, that's a good word. It doesn't have to be perfect, right? I think I tell people, and I didn't take this advice at first, right? I took it all on as, oh, this is my responsibility and I have to fix everything. And then when people are upset that their dogs still aren't fixed, and then I feel like it's my fault and I feel them, that's very difficult. I, I think from a behavior standpoint, people coming out, I say, you know, you try not to read email right before you go to bed because you'll see that email. And it's going to sit with you and you're going to perseverate on it and you're not going to sleep well. And then it's going to be on your mind. You'll have that dread in the morning that, or you're going to to get rid of it. And then you want to respond that night. And then you're also telling your clients you don't have boundaries and that you're willing to respond to them immediately. And what I found with most behavior emergencies is that if people have the day to kind of sit on it, now there's some that need immediate attention, but there's very few. Most can sit on it for the day. Let the clients come out of that emotional state of mind because it's not going to be a good conversation, even if it's by email, it's just not. And so, but I will tell them, if you feel like you need to respond to it because you have an answer, respond to it, but delay the send. If you need to answer it that night, so it's off your plate, delay the send till the next day. Because A, it sends a message to the client that you kind of have hours, you have boundaries, and that, you know, it also waits. So when they read your email, they're in a better state and they're better able, because otherwise they shoot right back at you with that angry state of mind. And then you go back and forth all day. And that's the worst, right? Because then you're telling them that you're available all the time and you're feeding into that emotion that's all theirs, right? It's normal. They're upset. They're sad. They're angry. But that's not at you. It's about their situation. So you have to try to say, this isn't about me. This really isn't about me. And remind yourself of that. And that it is okay for someone to be upset for a little while. But usually it's better if they've had a little time to simmer on it. And that we can't fix it all, right? There's just, there's not enough of us. And especially today, there are way too many problems with dogs and cats right now that we can't fix it all. So you just have to look at, all right, the ones I can't help, I can do that with quality and and help as best I can. And, and the rest, it's unfortunate. And so that's why for me, being where I am now to have impact where hopefully I can start with what's the population that's getting adopted? Like, how can I help filter that out? So maybe we're putting less of these out into the world. Maybe we're working with modifying things or using psychopharmacology to help aid in transitions for pets. And maybe they won't reach that disaster point so quickly or at all right, if we do that. So for me, shifting gears to a different uh, impact, there was a, somebody put a meme. It was great. It was someone who's a human social worker. And it was, we need to stop pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in in the first place. So I kind of feel like this job allows me to be upstream a little bit and think about, all right, how can we stop this faucet of our problems coming out of, of shelter and rescue dogs? So certainly we, we do the best job we can and we get dogs returned for behavior reasons, even though we have support and we try to support them. And we are saying to them, like, this isn't okay. Like, we don't want you to keep this dog. This isn't safe for you. The dog doesn't have a quality of life. You know, we, we probably should think about humane euthanasia it's for, for everyone's safety and for that dog's well-being sometimes that is the kindest choice for that animal. So we, we deal with that. And that always really is a bummer. But again, you have to 
okay, that's not my fault. The dog went out and it's not, I can't fix them all, but it is, I can support people and provide them resources to help them cope better without being their personal, you know, counselor that you can, you can give people support without taking on, you know, their, their emotional burden. Well, even your tip about delaying the send on email, the way you phrased it is very supportive to the professional helping someone else. So if you had told them delay the send so that you show like that you're not available, then people would be like, oh, but I just need to get it off my plate. You know, like I just need to know it's gone. Mm -hmm. But if you say delay the send so that they have time to kind of process the emotions they're having and that they can then respond from a better spot and that you have actually done them a favor by not responding right away. Correct. That is almost permission that people are searching for (laughs) sometimes. Like how am I allowed to set a boundary? I don't know if I'm allowed to set a boundary, but the way you phrased that made it so that not only are you allowed to set a boundary and that it's important to set a boundary for yourself, but it's actually helpful for the person on the receiving end. It does give us better outcomes over time for all of these pieces. Like when we recognize we're not fully responsible for all of the results of how a case turns out, but we are responsible for providing what support we can you know, what does that look like? How do I provide resources? There's a line there that you're drawing very beautifully. And I'm sure that the listeners are going to hear that there are distinctions being made of, of how much we need to carry. And um, I always ask guests for some words that have meaning to them. And you gave me some of my favorite words to date. Um, so what you said was the, the words that have meaning for you are, we can do it all. We just need to gain some comfort with mediocrity. I have to tell you, I laughed out loud when I read that. <laughs> I was like, gain comfort with mediocrity. Oh, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. A lifetime of trying to do things right. I'm not sure I have that comfort yet. So I'm dying to learn. What does that mean to you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not saying it came easy. It was just, it's just, it's, it's a, it's my work in progress and kind of my mantra when I'm when I'm beating myself up about, and you know, working mothers know this, right? Where you're a crappy parent or you're a crappy employee, right? It's one or the other. And so, well, maybe I don't have to be crappy at either, but I also don't have to be awesome or perfect at either. So if I can just give what my bandwidth allows, and it's probably not mediocre to everyone's standard. I think some people are like, wow, you do a great <laughs> job. You're not a terrible parent, you know, mm-hmm. but I feel like I am. So it's that comfort of it's, it's just good enough. It's, what my view of what mediocrity is, you know, I think those of us in these professions are somewhat perfectionist. I don't know that I'm a perfectionist, but I like, I have ambition and I like to see things through and I, I like things to be done well, even if not perfect. But I know that if I was just a mom, I'd probably be a better mother. And I know if I was just a veterinary behaviorist, I'd probably be better, but I'm both. And I want to do it all. I want both. I love both. So I just have to be able to say, and this the level that I'm doing this is good enough. And it might be mediocre by my standards, but I just have to gain comfort with that. So I just have to take a step back. It's okay. It's good enough. It's mediocre, but hey, it's mediocre on both and neither is terrible. So (laughs) that's got to be good enough. Yeah. Years ago, my brother said he heard the quote that behind every great kid was a mom who was convinced she's screwing it up. And he was sharing it with me because I was convinced I was screwing it up. And I think that that's, kind of true that we have this belief that like maybe we're not not doing it right or or good and what you just said about 
if I was just a mom, maybe I'd be a better mom. And if I was just a veterinary behaviors, maybe I'd be a vet- better veterinary behaviors. Wow, that was hard to say. And I would bet that that's not true. That like, if, you, if you're really <laughs> honest with who you are on the inside, I would bet that there would be a piece of you seeking and longing for something that wasn't there. And this mm-hmm. way, with the attitude and mindset that you have adopted, you've got a really healthy way of looking at life as rich and varied and and imperfect, but really darn good. And we get caught sometimes measuring our performance against the picture in our head, which usually is pretty close to perfect, and thinking, ugh, that's I'm not doing that well. But from the outside, like you said, people are saying, I think you're a really good mom. And I think you're a really good veterinary behaviorist. (laughs) They are actually observing more objective measures than we are because they're not trying to measure against perfection as we do sometimes internally. Mm -hmm. And externally, right? You know, when you're at the events at your kid's school and you see moms that are they, they're the lunch lady for the day and they're picking up right at the end of school and they're way more involved and you start to, you assume they're judging you. They're not like, I'm, I'm assuming taking their place. Gosh, it's so great. Like you're, you're so there for your kids all the time. And I'm not, you must think I'm a bad mom. They don't, Yeah, <laughs> don't. but you, we all do that or being with my employees. Like I have a lot of uh, either direct reports or this isn't true there, but when I was at university, like most of my bosses, nobody had kids. Mm-hmm. And so I was assuming like they're judging me because I'm having to leave at a certain time or I'm behind um, because this is not the productivity that they would expect from someone who's not a parent. And, and as a woman, we, we get no slack and we don't give each other slack either. I remember being in a meeting and one of the other faculty members saying, oh gosh, I just got to give it to Dr. X, a male. You know, he's got two kids and he's really trying hard. And I was thinking, <laughs> his wife, she doesn't work. What do you mean? Like, (laughs) my husband works weekends. He's a human medical hospitalist. So he works Mm -hmm. weekends. He works like second shifts. I'm doing this all and working full time. Nobody's saying, oh, that poor doctor here. And gosh, she's got so much on her plate. But, you know, a guy has a couple kids and is a good dad. And suddenly like, wow, I really feel, really feel for him. And this is a woman saying this who had children. Like we right. just, we sabotage each other. It's, I don't understand, but um, yeah. It's because it's just part of the culture that we're like, we don't even notice it. Like that woman didn't see sexism in her comment. My oldest son had a baby this year in January. So she's still really little. And very early on, he was asking me all sorts of questions like, you know, how could he be a good dad? And I mean, it was so sweet. It was really touching. Aww. And he said, you know what I've learned in all of my asking and researching is that to be a good dad and to be a kind of crappy mom is exactly the same bar. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was like, oh dear, (laughs) that's bad. And he was like, I don't, I don't mean it. I don't mean it in that way it sounds, but really when you look at like, what do you have to do to be a good mom? The bar is pretty high. And what you have to do to be a good dad, the bar is not that high. And I was like, I think you just need to love her and take care of her and care about what she thinks and feels. (laughs) And he was like, I can do that. (laughs) And when he, when he realized that, yeah, the messaging is very different and the messaging his wife was absorbing was a little different than some of what he was absorbing. And it's just, 
we don't even notice. There was actually in yesterday's Washington Post, there was an article about some of the discrimination and weight that female employees without children experience, where they might be considered less prepared for a managerial role because, you know, they're not parents and they haven't managed those pieces. And there is more data showing all of the ways that women with children are held back professionally. And now this data is saying how women without children are held back professionally. And we're not we can't really win. looking at how men with and without children, you know, no. <laughs> not as much of an issue. But I think if you were to say to the average woman, we need to gain some comfort with mediocrity, I think most of them would react as I did with a little bit of surprise, shock and discomfort of like, I don't know if I can. <laughs> yes. Well, but you have to, right? In some cases, because uh, otherwise you're just going to be constantly disappointed and beating yourself up. You just got to at some point say it's good enough. Yeah. And when we constantly beat ourselves up, that actually adds so much more weight than whatever mm-hmm. it was that we're beating ourselves up about. And so to be able to let that go is incredibly powerful. So I love that. So if you had one wish for all the people who work with animals, particularly pets, but animals of any sort, but this is your wish for the people who work with them, what would it be? I wish that they could see the good that they are doing and let that be what radiates and motivates them and perseverates in their mind rather than those that they can't fix or haven't helped, right? And to have that focus and to sit at night and cherish all the, even if they're small victories, right? So one dog with separation anxiety can stay home alone for half an hour. (laughs) Hey, couldn't even do five minutes a week ago. Like let's cherish the victories we've made and try to focus less on maybe the challenges we face or the dogs that we are cats, we haven't fully fixed because it isn't about us. And we are helping that dog or cat, even if it ends up being a euthanasia decision. Sometimes that's what's best for that pet. I just had a conversation with one of our trainers who's having a hard time with some of, we've been taking in more challenging cases and some of them we have to make that hard behavioral euthanasia choice because it's the right, it's the most humane path for that, for that dog. And I say, you know, we have to think about you helped this dog find success because the other choice was to leave it in this rural source shelter, rotting for months, barely being walked, sitting in its own feces with no interaction, constantly circling. And instead, we brought it here and we gave it three weeks of a comfortable place to live, of, you know, outside exercise three times a day psychopharmacology to help them. And they didn't end up in a home because they're not, they're not the safe pet, but you helped them find that path to what was their best success. And they really said, gosh, that's a good way of thinking about it. Like I helped them find that path to success. Even if euthanasia is the outcome, it was still a success for that dog because it was better than what the alternative was where they were. Right. And so try to focus on you are finding the path to success. That's the best. And sometimes what successes may still feel like it's failure to the client or failure to, it wasn't what you love. It wasn't 100% rehabilitation of whatever you were treating, but you made them get to the point that was their best success possible. I fully believe that we do that even in those, but we, we, we focus on what we didn't accomplish, but to just focus on and cherish those things you do accomplish and cherish those small victories. I try to tell my clients that too, just cherish those small victories, no matter how small, you know, sit at night and have some gratitude for that, what you've accomplished 
so that you're, you just run that narrative in your brain because you really do make a huge difference. And if, if you weren't around, <laughs> think of those thousands of pets that would have no help, right? Their success would never have been found. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really powerful. That's a beautiful wish. I love that. If people wanted to learn more about you and your work, how could they do that? Yeah, um, you can find us at ggs, so G-I-G-I-S dot org. And we can learn about our shelter, learn about the impact we have on our shelter partners. If you want to adopt a dog from Central Ohio, <laughs> come and see us. And, you know, we're always looking, we're always expanding our programming. And our, I think our long-term dream would be to see more GGs around the country and to be able to help, you know, that kind of fill that gap between, you know, the high demand of our high supply of dogs in these sort of rural under um, resourced areas and match those, you know, high resourced parts of the country that are looking for dogs and are desperate to fill their shelters, right? If we could just try to fill that gap and that's, that's our main goal. Um, so keep, keep checking around and hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll find a way to reach you wherever you are. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for talking to me today. This was really fun conversation and I'm really grateful for you to share your thoughts. Oh, it was really great to talk to you, Colleen. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Unleashed at Work and Home. I invite you to come learn more at ColleenPilar.com where you can be steady, be strong, and be long.